Welcome to Circus Futures European Circus Conversations, a series of podcasts featuring traditional and contemporary circus professionals from across Europe. My name is Laura Murphy. I'm a UK-based contemporary circus artist and a Circus Next laureate. This podcast features Jay Gilligan, an American juggler who's presently living in Sweden. Jay will tell us about his own circus journey and talk about what he feels constitutes innovation in circus. Hi, my name is Jay Gilligan. I'm a circus artist. You could also call me a juggler. And I know it's really hard to maybe start to define all those words straight away. Everybody has a different understanding of what things mean. You could also in one way say I'm an artist and the technique I work in is uh, juggling. And I know when I started off uh, juggling in America, I was born in Ohio. Now I live in Stockholm, Sweden. But I started juggling when I was eight years old in Ohio. And I started performing immediately (laughs) as soon as I learned how to juggle. There was some sort of culture at the time about, well, if you're going to learn how to do the three ball cascade, then, well, you're going to show that to somebody. Somebody's going to look at you and watch you do that. So it was kind of assumed that if you were going to learn these skills, then you were going to show them and share them with other people. In most cases, in that the context for that sharing would be a, a show or a performance. And so... I was performing uh, as I was growing up and into being a teenager. And I remember when I was maybe 18, 19 years old, I did a show and there was a newspaper review that came out and uh, the review said something, something about the show, but then they said postmodern juggling. And I thought that was a really, <laughs> at the time, a really funny idea because there's, all, there's kind of two conversations always going on. There's your internal conversation with yourself about how you frame your, your work and your, and your life and how you understand what you're doing these talks you have with yourself where you try to articulate and label and understand and, and organize <laughs> certain things in your lives. But then there's also an external conversation. For example, in this newspaper review by saying, well, this uh, show was postmodern juggling. I thought it was a really funny kind of way to engage that conversation with, with the world around me. Because of course it calls into question, you know, well, if this is postmodern juggling, then what what in the world is modern juggling and what is juggling? You know, you can just trace that question backwards as many steps as you want to go. It was kind of a funny way to bring up that conversation about what we're, what are we doing here. And my whole performance career, you always get those comments after the shows. People come up after the show and they say, and I don't mean it in a negative way. I really appreciate people's generosity with sharing their thoughts and enthusiasm about the show because I think it's a genuine statement. They say, you know, I don't like juggling, but I like your show. Or normally I hate juggling. Normally I hate jugglers, <laughs> but I really enjoyed your juggling. And I don't think it's just special to me. I talk to a lot of my performing friends who are also jugglers, and they they get the same comments. There is this idea that my friend and colleague Eric Oberry here in Stockholm, Sweden, we have a we have a little podcast together called Object Episodes, and we have a performance company together called Capsule, where we've been creating uh, shows for the past uh, fifteen years together. And he says it's kind of uh, post-disciplinary, if you will, this, this idea that, oh, I, I hate juggling, but I like what you do. Or normally I hate circus. It's like, normally I hate poetry. And it's like, no, you know, Eric came up with this thing called genre of good. We hate things that are bad or we dislike things that are bad, right? And we like things that are good. So if it's good juggling, well, you're going to like it. And if it's good poetry, you're going to like it. So in this conversation of trying to kind of identify and label what we do, 
also talk about that, having that conversation about selling your work and having to market your work. You know, back when I was 19, then I could say, I do postmodern juggling. And at least it was a way to stand out, right? It was just a way to be unique because it was a funny juxtaposition of words because you don't normally see this postmodern label uh, attached to, jug- to juggling, right? But there was also another kind of layer to it, which is that a lot of times in circus and in juggling, we try to elevate what we're doing by associating our practice or our, our process or our product with something else that's more valid or more legitimate in larger society. So saying a word like postmodern, well, that's clearly conceptual artists and it's kind of an academic or intellectual sounding phrase. So yeah, if you if you attach that label to juggling, all of a sudden juggling isn't just quote unquote juggling, it's postmodern juggling. It makes it sound like it's something more or it kind of gives a different motivation to pay attention to what I'm doing and what juggling is or could be. When I was growing up in Ohio, in America, I learned to juggle at eight years old from a book and... I look back on that time that was in 1985. And of course, juggling, it's uh, what Ivar Heckscher calls one of the time arts. It's, it's, a, it's something that happens in time. It's something that's experienced through the passing of time. The artist puts in the time and invests the time to create the object. And then once that process of investing time and energy into creating that one final product there or result, that object exists. And then people can observe or look or experience that sculpture, for example. Obviously, circus and dance and music and there's a lot of arts, time arts, like Ivar Heckscher, a great Swedish philosopher, uh, he calls them the time arts. And so juggling, for example, is, is experienced through the unfolding of time. I definitely invest my own time and resources and energy into learning the skills or the technique of the actual movements of juggling. But then for someone to observe that or see the result, again, to kind of point at what happened out of all that work and time. They also need to spend time by watching me as time passes to, to see the juggling unfold. And so I learned eight years old from a book, which is kind of funny because a book is not necessarily uh, a time art. I mean, of course, you have to move your eyes to read the, the words, but the words don't really change. They're, they're concretely there. And what I'm saying is reflecting back, you know, 1985, there was no YouTube. The internet was not a thing. So how can you learn a kinetic art form from a static, you know, kind of communication? And I lived in the middle of cornfields, so I didn't have anybody to teach me. I didn't come from a circus family tradition. I didn't have other circus practitioners around me or other jugglers. So I had to learn from this book. And in one way, I think it was a wonderful experience, of course, because I definitely misinterpreted a lot of the information a lot of the time. And I think that confusion or mistake (laughs) really led to a lot of great discoveries. And it really taught me a lot. And I learned so much more than if maybe I would have just seen a video of somebody juggling three balls. And I go, oh, that's how you do it. There wouldn't have been any ambiguity in the transmission of the information. And I think it is in the, it's in the corruption of that transmission that kind of benefited me because, you know, the book had some drawings and it tried to have a little bit of like explanation with diagrams and figures, but it's really hard to, with words even, to accurately describe what's happening with, with juggling, for example. And I remember, you know, being, for example, 12 years old, I would have a notebook and I I would uh, make up a new juggling trick or a new pattern and I would try to write it down, right? So I had these notebooks just filled up little drawings and diagrams and stick figures with arrows (laughs) looping around and like little, little juggling balls drawn around a little stick figure. 
and then I would I would give it a name. I would try to give it some sort of title, right? Again, that internal conversation. How are you trying to relate to your work? And at the time, of course, it was crystal clear. I knew exactly where the trick had come from because it was just in that moment of creation. I knew the exact process, the steps I, that I had taken because they were fresh that day or that week. And I would write it down in this notebook. And then months later or next year later or two years later, I go back and look at that drawing and go, oh, yeah, yeah, there was that trick. What was that trick? And I would read the, the name, I would give the trick, and it made no sense. I have no, no recollection at all. And the description, I just had no relationship to it. I couldn't remember at all where it came from. And the diagram was completely confusing. But still, it was like a little bit of an instigation. I mean, it was a confrontation, this little time machine. Uh, I have this drawing in front of me, and I'm going to travel back two years and try to guess what was going on. There were some clues there. And it definitely wasn't the, the final you know, explanation of, of everything, how it should be. But there were some hints about what could be. So even though I couldn't recreate that original trick, I, I would maybe create 20 more tricks trying to figure out what, what my drawing meant, right? So that was like, in one way, a really accidentally, you know, it was an accident, but it was a really great uh, way to create things was this kind of opaque uh, <laughs> documentation of my work. And I still struggle with that today, how to document my work in a meaningful way and organize it in my life. For example, Eric Oberry and myself, we've been uh, talking for a few years now about what would be the perfect way to learn juggling or the perfect way to teach juggling or the perfect way to have uh, an education, you know, because circus schools are very popular these days. And one funny thing came out that maybe the first day of class where you have this kind of stereotypical image, maybe like, okay, first day of school, and we're going to go do all this, you know, physical practice and physical movement. And we're just ready to jump in and start our journey. And there's all this enthusiasm. And we thought, well, actually, maybe that, that first day would be much better off making sure your computer had, a much, had, had enough space on your hard drive and organizing a file system on your, on your desktop of your laptop or your computer in such a way that you could archive material that you would generate over the course of the education. That's one of the things I like about juggling is that when I stop juggling, the juggling also stops. And there's something fascinating about it that it's not permanent. And of course, it's also super frustrating. I mean... You can do the best show in the world, and the next day, you're kind of starting from zero again. And we can, again, we can go back and talk about you know, buying and selling art or, or performances or whatever you want to say, entertainment. We can change those words around for now and say, yeah, okay, you can build up some sort of uh, credibility or energy or reputation that, that you can surf on into the future. That, that performance from last night, it's finished, but hopefully the ripples, the effects of that performance will help you surf on into the future of your career and enable, you know, open some doors and have some sort of financial mechanism that's going to sustain your practice. But in reality, the show from last night is done. And, and yeah, of course, we could have filmed it. And that's what I'm talking about, documentation. But it's not the same thing, right? It's, it's, uh, it's still going to be a film. And so this failure of having just a pre-made system or, or a culture is what I mean around this part of our, our process and practice has been really rich and deep area in which to think the past few years. I've been juggling 35 years now, and I've performed in about 40 different countries, and I've performed for Cirque du Soleil and Les Sept Doigts de la Main and Cirque Alois and Spiegel World and Cirque Circor and whatever company you want to name. I, I mean, there's been a lot of companies, <laughs> Jerome Thomas Company, and a lot of collaborations with, with bigger companies, but also a lot of projects I've done on my own. I think I counted recently, and I've personally made uh, over 75 different solo shows in my life, which, yeah, seems 
even to me at this point, that seems pretty crazy. <laughs> but again, it's, it's uh, looking back and saying, well, what's a solo show? I mean, definitely when I was a teenager growing up, I was doing the standard, you know, telling jokes and juggling knives and apples and fire and performing at the family reunion and the local fire station Halloween party. <laughs> and then I'd say around yeah, 1997, I started to do my first, we could say, quote unquote, serious show in a theater. I did a solo show, like my first show was like two hours long and just a kind of a collection of a bunch of little moments, choreographing two different songs and kind of structuring my work towards the structure of music and following that sort of rhythm. And I remember taking shows like that. I came over to Europe for the first time in the, in the late 90s. And uh, I performed at this one festival in Helsinki. And there was a bunch of French juggling and circus artists in the audience at this festival. And they watched the show. And afterwards, I really remember one of the French jugglers coming over to me and not screaming at me, but just having kind of a failure of, of social grace of how to express this. So it wasn't like screaming at me, but he was really like, what, you can't do a show like that. That's not a show. You can't do that. And it's not a show. And he just kept, he just couldn't, he just kept saying that over and over again. It wasn't a show and that I can't do that. And I was just like, not being a punk, but really I was just thinking in my head, I was like, well, I did, I did just do that. And quite literally it was a show. And, you know, it took me many years later to understand what he meant, which was basically that, I was deconstructing kind of what he was imagining was a proper or, you know, uh, <laughs> a valid or worthy performance. And I was kind of deconstructing that uh, whole cathedral he had built towards what is, what is a show. And I was looking at a show as a collection of small parts instead of a, a larger whole arc with, a with, they say, a red line, right? You maybe heard that phrase before, going through it. And well, that's how I grew up. I just didn't know any different. I was in Ohio on my own making it up, so... How, how should I know what, what it was? And again, this is before the internet. And I did my best, though, with uh, trying to find out resources at the time. And again, going back to that first book on juggling that I had, which was so valuable in, in my misunderstandings or, you know, the failure of that, that method to communicate what juggling could be or should be or is or whatever. There was, there was actually a really nice resource at the time. It was by a really great woman named Mary Wilkins, and Mary was so nice. She was a juggling enthusiast in America. And somehow it became her, I don't, I don't know, say hobby, but passion at least, to collect all of these uh, juggling VHS tapes. So if there was a juggler, if Chris Cremo would be on TV, you know, maybe in the late 70s, early 80s, she would, she would either record it on a VHS tape or she would find a friend who had recorded it and then make a copy of it. Or she would kind of source all of the TV appearances of jugglers uh, across America and across the world. I mean, she had a lot of international connections too at the time. And, and she would just have, uh, have hundreds and hundreds of VHS tapes of juggling. But she didn't just collect it and kind of hoard and, and, and you know, covet this material. What she, she had a little system, which was pretty cool looking back on it. Again, in the mid-1980s, before anything was digitized and, sh and so easily, easily shareable like it is today. So she had a system where she had a Xerox pages. And on these papers was a number. And then next to the number was a name and a description of the VHS tape. And so maybe videotape number 249 would say German jugglers. And then it would have a list, you know, Bob, you know, Bob Bramson and whatever, like it would just describe like all the jugglers on this VHS tape. And there were just, she would have pages, I mean, 10 or 12 Xeroxed pages of, of really small typeface, you know, up to, 
you know, typed out on a typewriter that she had copied. And she always includes a new copy with every time this would happen. But what you could do is you could send her an envelope that was uh, self, self-addressed self and stamped, and you could get that list. She would send you that list in the mail, a Xeroxed copy. Then you would take that list, and I think you could borrow up to, I think it was three, three videotapes at a time. So she basically made a, a, a library, and you would circle the number of the tape you wanted, and then you would, include a, you would include a larger envelope with more postage on it that would cover the cost of shipping the VHS tapes to you. And she would send you those actual three tapes and you could borrow them for, I forget what it was, you know, a week or two. But man, those tapes were gold. I mean, they unlocked the world to me. They showed me what could be possible with juggling and, and outside of what the world looked like outside of Ohio and outside of my own experience. And I owe Mary Wilkins probably my career, I'd have to say, you know, looking back on it, I just borrowed probably every single tape that she had, probably borrowed every tape she had twice, you know. And I watched them, you know, if you could keep them for a week, I would watch each tape, you know, at least twice a day, right? Like just hours staring at the TV, just fascinated by what juggling could be and just being so inspired and learning about different things all around the world. And that kind of brings us into this idea of what is innovation. One of the biggest things as I can say is innovation, it does happen inside of a larger world. I think innovation is, it's, it's something that's relative, innovation it's not obviously less just like a concrete destination that nope you've arrived here and it's it's insular and that it's just now you're innovative and there's no other relationship you know outside of that categorization innovation is only relative to well we can say it's a spectrum then and so what is the opposite of innovation on originality i don't know <laughs> like i mean we could we could examine it from many different points of view but you can start to ask yourself what's the opposite of innovation so we have that as the starting point of a spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum is as innovative as you can imagine, right? And so innovation lies somewhere along that discussion of however you choose to define the, of those two poles on the opposite ends of that line. And so basically what you're doing is you need to give a context by what you mean is innovative. And that's what Mary Wilkins' videotapes did for me is they gave me a framework. They gave me a context to start to have a relationship of what I was doing those little stick figure drawings I was making in my notebook. How does that relate to what I was seeing from a, a juggler from China on these, on these VHS tapes that were, you could barely make out the image on the screen. They were just so old and broken. But I could start to have there an internal dialogue and say, oh, they're doing that. They're, they're juggling like that. And I was juggling like this today. And I was thinking about juggling like this tom- this other way tomorrow and but how do I like how does how do I fit into the conversation this bigger conversation that's outside myself over the years I've met so many performer artist entertainer whatever you juggler you know whatever you want to say over my lifetime I've met so many jugglers I I, I would say hey yeah, hey nice to meet you we're at this festival for example uh, um, I'm performing tomorrow and the next day like you, sh- you should come see my show and uh, when are you when are you performing they go no no I don't go see any circus I don't see any other performers I don't see in any other juggling it's kind of my rule normally they say something like i don't want to be unconsciously influenced by anything else on one hand i totally can relate to that i mean on a very casual level i can first of all literally understand and grasp the meaning of their words i get it and then maybe even in a casual way as a in terms of my process as an artist i can even relate to that desire that sometimes when you're having your process and you're making something, you do want to kind of go away from the world and you want to look inside yourself and you want to have a time to be private and introspective, right? 
I totally get that because you don't you you want to block out the noise. I mean, look around us today in the digital world. You know, contrasting the VHS tapes from Mary to to now, where we have all these devices and screens and social media. So yeah, I get it. I can totally relate to that as as being a really important component, maybe of a artistic process. But I have to say, on the other hand, whether you like it or not, you're in a conversation with the rest of the world. You're in a larger context than yourself. And in that larger conversation and larger context, you have to realize that you're not alone. And so these artists who are saying like, I don't want to see any other juggling because it might unconsciously influence my own and I don't want to copy. I want to be original and I don't want to be influenced. First of all, I'm not even sure. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but I'm skeptical that you'll never not be unconsciously influenced. And maybe that's their point, right? Therefore, I'm going to avoid watching juggling because whether I like it or not, I know that's going to seep into my practice. And then maybe some of the ideas I come up with will be derivative or unwanted in a certain direction or influence because I can't help it. I can't help myself. We're, we're all in this world and we're just absorbing everything around us. But again, at the same time, it seems like, I don't know, a little bit of a dangerous situation to be in. I've definitely seen it happen twice in the past couple of years where a really high profile, you know, let's say circus performance and it gets a lot of response. It's very popular. A lot of people see it. And then someone else will come out and say, ah, oh, I did what they were doing, but I made I, I did it, I did the same thing, but I did it two years earlier. People didn't see it. And now there's a show that came out that got very popular with this idea. And hey, hey, I'm claiming ownership over it, or I'm trying to capture some of the energy of the current hype around whatever this new thing is that came out from someone else. I totally don't deny the plausibility that you did make it up two years ago. And I, I can also even sympathize with you. Maybe you did do a show and it didn't pop off or you didn't get in in front of the right eyes or it just was just bad luck or who knows why. But my point is whether you made it up or not two years ago, it's not irrelevant, but you do have to, again, realize you're not alone in the world and you have to deal with the situation that you're in. So you have to acknowledge and say, hey, maybe I did make that thing up a couple years ago. But again, innovation is, happens inside of a, in terms of a community. There's the internal and external, external conversation. So I think being innovative in the internal conversation, it's another thing we can talk about. Generally, we talk about innovation. It's uh, maybe the starting point of that conversation is it's the external conversation of when you're talking to someone else about innovation and what is innovative. And it's kind of a, again, this zeitgeist or this feeling that a collective thing that's really hard to define or talk about or influence even but let's say this show comes out, you made the thing two years ago, this new show pops off, someone else gets all the credit, all the energy, all the love, all the money, <laughs> all the popularity, and you come out and you say, hey, 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 but wait a second, I did that two years ago. What you have to understand in that conversation is that person is getting all the credit right now, and you need to relate to that reality, and you can't pretend it didn't happen, and you have to acknowledge it. That's what I'm saying. So this acknowledgement of what's going on in reality in the community going on around you. That's what I'm talking about in terms of this idea, these people I meet where they say, I don't want to watch any juggling because <laughs> I don't want to be unconsciously influenced. For me personally, I'd much rather, if I could, watch all of the juggling in the world all the time, not so that I can copy all the juggling in the world, but just so that I can understand what's out there and understand what people are working on and be in that larger conversation. I think I find it such a more efficient and enjoyable process. It's much more conscious. It's much more intentional. It's much less stumbling around in the dark. 
Because I've seen these artists who, on purpose, in my words, remain ignorant in their process and in their work and in their, in their results of this, this larger connection to the world. And I've seen them literally reinvent the wheel. The problem is they reinvent the wheel, but it just, it's shaped like a triangle or a square. I, I don't know, like <laughs> in this analogy, <laughs> they reinvent something that somebody had already done a million times better than them. And, they'd, and those people had done it like 20 years earlier. But because you refuse to engage that conversation with the larger world, then you're kind of blocking out that opportunity you have as an artist to, for example, jumpstart your process or take an exponential leap if you just would have kind of looked at what had happened before you. And that kind of points out another good thing, which is this idea that in the past couple of years, there's been a little bit of renewed interest in the history of juggling, let's say, for example, in the history of circus too, that kind of goes hand in hand with this little bit of an academic trend in circus that academics and circus is starting to become, you know, a hot topic to, to explore and to talk about. And there's been like a lot of support structures for that to enable that stuff to happen. So parallel to that, there's been also these discussions then about, you know, the history of circus, the history of juggling. And there's a little bit of a renewed interest in old tricks and old books and, <laughs> and trying to understand the past in a wider context, you know, with our new digital tools and these new conversations we can have. So this, with this idea of understanding the past, I think a lot of artists say, well, that's fun from a theoretical perspective. Oh yeah, the history of juggling, you know, they're fun stories, but what does it mean to your work? And I would say, you know, a lot of people still have that feeling of like, like, oh, it's fun to be interested in the history of juggling, but it doesn't really mean anything to what I'm doing today. Personally, for me, at least in my process, I don't want to judge or talk about others, but for myself, at least, this idea of what came before me really is going to inform what's going to come next. So if you want to talk about being innovative, imagine you have a big white piece of paper in front of you and you draw a dot on that piece of paper in the middle of the paper. And then I ask you and I say, hey, where do we go from this dot on this blank piece of paper except for one dot? Where do you draw the next dot? I think you would just look at me completely confused. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and what it means is there's no information. There's no more information on that piece of paper to tell you where to draw the next dot. So how about this? Let's say you start to pinpoint, this is when people started juggling clubs and you put a dot on the paper, like a timeline. And you say, this is when people started juggling rings and you put another dot. This is when people started combining in the same you know, show or act, they would juggle one prop and then another prop and you put another dot there at that time. And you start to kind of map out the history, this little timeline, looking into the past of where different events happened. Well, eventually you're going to get a line. They're gonna, you're going to have a little offshoots. Here's where club juggling started, but then you can start a new timeline for, for club juggling. And you can start to trace and document and lay this out on this piece of paper. And then I can start to say, hey, where do you want to put the next dot? And then you suddenly have a framework. You have a conversation. You have a context. And you can say, I'm going to put a dot here. And I go, oh, I see. That's next to when people started juggling clubs. Okay. So what would be the next step after juggling clubs? Well, what happened before club juggling that made club juggling happen? Oh, club juggling came because of this, this, and this. You know, X, Y, and Z happened. Okay, now I understand. Therefore, the next logical step could possibly be, and you could extrapolate X, Y, and Z for the next step. Because I have to say, when I started juggling, I was a kid, first of all, <laughs> but I was also just a hobbyist. I, this wasn't like the, you know, I wasn't an artist. I, I didn't have this intention with what I was doing. It was just, it was mindless. It was just fun. I mean, it's still fun. Don't get me wrong, but it, it was, it, yeah, it was unconscious is the word. And so 
yeah, people said, hey, here's some juggling clubs. You, you juggle them like this. And I just go, okay, yep, that's how it is. And if you asked me back when I was a teenager, who first juggled juggling rings, I would have just, first of all, I would have been like, well, that's not, a, that's not a question to ask. But if somebody else would have asked me that question, I would have been like, who knows? And who can know? Like, that's impossible to know. Clearly, juggling rings have been around for, for as long as time. Like, that's how I felt with everything when I started off in the juggling world. Here's this juggling trick. Well, that trick's been around as long as the history of recorded time has been here, clearly. I mean, not all tricks equally, but like, let's say that, you know, the most basic patterns, I just thought, well, nobody could ever know where those came from. They're just lost (laughs) in the passage of time. But it turns out, again, with this new, recent renewed interest in the history of, of circus and the history of juggling, going along with this academic interest in circus and juggling, you can know who was the first person who juggled rings. And it turns out, guess what? They're still alive today. So it just blows my mind that having this curiosity outside of yourself to not just shut yourself off, right? Those, those people that I met who were like, I don't watch any other jugglers. And to not stop there and say, not only do I watch other jugglers, but I'm also actively searching for consciousness and what I'm doing and uncovering the reasons of why and where I am. That you can look into the past and go, oh, that's where juggling clubs came from. Oh, that's how the juggling balls evolved into this shape, size, weight, texture, material, center of gravity, cost. And that those things are knowable. And using that information, it's just so powerful. It's just, it's, it's almost indescribable to have this new understanding of where things come from and how they work to kind of uncover the mechanisms of why things are the way they are has been one of the most powerful tools or experiences of, of my artistic life and maybe my life in general. So this idea of how do you be innovative? Maybe it seems like a paradox, but maybe one way to be innovative is just to, to understand the past. To understand, again, what's the opposite of innovative, meaning maybe where did we come from? And at the time, of course, in the past, juggling rings at one point, because there was one person who did it, that was innovative, right? (laughs) And I think it's really fascinating now to have this kind of larger journey and this larger overview and this larger thought about the the process of how, how we got here, where we are with circus and juggling. And to think that ring juggling today is so u- ubiquitous. Everybody has juggling rings. It's, nobody thinks twice. If you go juggle rings, it's almost, it's banal. It's completely irrelevant almost, right? Like, oh yeah, juggling rings, whatever. Like everybody does it um, to the point where you maybe don't even think about it or notice it, that it would be something to think about where it came from. Back in the day, the ring juggling was the innovative thing, the first person who did it. So it's kind of fun for me now to think that It'd be, what would be the thing that you've made up today that in a hundred years would just be completely ubiquitous? That's like, not that I presume to say that, oh, the stuff I'm making up is going to be that um, iconic, but it's really a fun thing to think about how things, you know, will live on into the future because we can now look and see how things came from the past. And so, for example, I guess it's probably 10 years ago now, I started a little solo company here in Sweden to make some solo performances and the name of the company was Fourth Shape. And it was kind of a nod to this concept, which is that in juggling, we have these three kind of standard props. It's the, it's the ball, the club and the ring. And I was just proposing, what is the fourth shape going to be? Will there be a fourth shape? And if there is a fourth shape, what in the world could that shape be? And it was kind of a fun uh, nod towards the future of juggling, but also this encapsulation of the, the history and the past, <laughs> you know, 
of how we all got here and this kind of this larger conversation, again, in that spectrum, you can draw a line from the future to the past and back and forth there. Another thing to say about maybe, maybe the last thing to say about innovation for now is that this idea of having innovation inside a community, it's a conversation. To be innovative in the external way, it almost seems like you, you want to be progressive, but you can't be too far outside of the realm of people's understanding. If you're too innovative, you're not innovative anymore because <laughs> people have no relationship to what you're doing. So therefore, they have no way to judge that what you're doing would be innovative. So for example, if I make a juggling trick today with two juggling rings and a juggling ball, you know, people can look at that trick and other jugglers, let's say, and they're going to go, oh, that's a funny trick. But fundamentally at the core, I'm not going to get as much credit or credibility or validation as if I would have made a three ball juggling trick. Because the thing is, juggling two rings and a ball, it's not really something that a lot of people do. Like people do it all the time, obviously, they play around with it. But if you look around and kind of try to define and standardize, like give words to what people are doing in juggling right now, for example, nobody's the two ring, one ball juggler. That's not a thing. So yeah, people can mix props freely every single day. And I'm sure as I'm recording this right now, there's a hundred people out there in the world at this very moment juggling two rings and a ball. That's for sure. But in terms of it being an established kind of genre or an established sort of standardized practice that a lot of people participate in. So that I would make a trick with two rings and a ball, jugglers in general would have less experience with that set of props. So they can give me respect and they can relate to what I'm doing as far as, oh, maybe they tried to juggle two rings and a ball once. But if I came out instead of a two ring and a ball trick, I came out with a new three ball trick that nobody had seen you get much more energy, much more respect, much more relation to the community because everybody's juggling three balls. That's a thing. So if you want to be innovative in one way, you have to do things that people can still relate to at least you know, on some level enough that they have an understanding of what you're doing. If you start to innovate on a conceptual level, then it starts to get a little bit more dangerous for you if you want to have this <laughs> innovative title um, you know, to, to a certain group or a certain demographic of people. You have to have something that's relatable that they can understand and evaluate what you're doing in order for them to also agree and say that it's innovative. Again, this is all the external conversation. If we remove the mechanism of money, of sustainability in your practice that money enables, uh, for example, and if you remove the buying and selling of art or performances or the buying, buying and selling of entertainment, if we remove that from the conversation, then I think innovation is also, it's a, it's a totally different conversation. Again, it's going back to that blank white, white page with that single dot on it. But when we start to talk about buying and selling circus performances and buying and selling juggling performances, and we start to talk about the market and the market forces and the producers, the cultural gatekeepers, the mechanisms of production and the politics and the everything involved, then you can start to have a really clear framework on this. Your, your, your piece of paper is filled up. You know, it's almost completely colored in at that point if you start to, to draw out all those things on the paper. And then we start to say, hey, what is innovative? Well, it's all relative then to what is that larger discussion of innovative to, to what criteria and to what group of people in what moment and what period of time and all of that. So that's a little bit about me and my practice and my process as a juggler for the past 35 years and a few thoughts on innovation. And I really want to thank you for listening to this and uh, I hope to meet you in the future and have more discussions. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. 
Do join us for further Circus Futures European Circus Conversations. This podcast has been supported using public funding by Arts Council England and is lottery funded. Additional funding for Circus Futures activities has been provided by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union.